If you would open your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 6. And if you are visiting, we're really glad you're here. I'm Darren, one of the pastors. And uh, you just get to have a little front row seat to just amazing things that Jesus is doing in this community. Luke chapter 6, verse 20. Jesus is talking. In, it's an, I think that this is one of those sermons... You know, Tim's dad is a pastor, and he calls these sugar sticks. It's the sermon that if you're a traveling preacher, you just do this one over and over again. I just know this one. This is my material. This is, but it's more than that. It's like some deep thing because it's just a normal thing that you talk about because you're passionate about it. And I believe that this is one of those sermons because Luke recounts this uh, sermon as a sermon on the plains. Matthew records it as a sermon on the mount. Is it a contradiction, or is it just because Jesus preached it more than once? I think he preached it more than once. And I think as Matthew is recounting it, he's recounting it in a way that the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, my version of it, I love Matthew's version so much more uh, because he metaphorizes this and I don't have to really face the, the, what, what Luke says from it. Um, because Luke says, as he lifted up his eyes, speaking of Jesus on his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you'll be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh and blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Behold, for your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. I, I, I had a front row seat to this just a couple weeks ago. David and I sitting in the living room of one of the underground church pastors that we're supporting as a church in North Africa. And it is illegal there as drugs are here. And when he said, sitting in the living room, hey, they've been investigating us. They were just, they've been snooping around at my, my wife's work and just the, the police could come at any moment. Now I'm over here like typing a text out to Seculo going, okay, just in case, I want to be able to hit send. You know, this is my wife's phone. Number. But not Cleopas. Cleopas was, had a smile on his face the whole time. It was the most bizarre thing. Like he's, it's like he's talking about the police coming, but he's acting like he's just talking about the weather because he understood something that Jesus said in a way that I've yet to, I don't think, fully understand this side of heaven. That when Jesus said, blessed are the poor, he actually wasn't kidding. He meant it. Let's pray. Father, would you give us insight into your uh, word today? I pray that your spirit would speak instead of me, in spite of me, and that your truth would become real to us today. A, a word that isn't just academic, but a word that actually pierces our hearts and our souls and, and changes us. It's in, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. I, um, I read C.S. Lewis' Mere Christianity about once a year. I just need it. I don't know about you, but I just need the reminder. And he just did such a great job, and it's so succinct and in this passage, this part that he writes about when he says charity, by the way, he's talking about giving to the poor. And C.S. Lewis says, if our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things that we'd like to do but cannot because our charitable expenditures excluded them. That's C.S. Lewis saying a central part of Christianity is how we're treating those who are poor and oppressed and marginalized. Jonathan Edwards, who was not exactly known as a, a liberal uh, humanist. If you don't know Jonathan Edwards, you might remember him because you might have had to study him in English class, the sinners in the hands of an angry God sermon. You remember that? So he wasn't exactly known as somebody that minced 
words or spoken hyperbole. He was someone that was very tortured in his words and very purposeful in his words. Somebody who I wouldn't consider liberal or progressive, but very conservative, more even than myself. But in his treatise on how to deal with the least of these in our society, he actually writes, among about 14 other pages, where have we any command in the Bible laid down in stronger terms in more peremptory, urgent manner than the command of giving to the poor? That's Jonathan Edwards. Now, I did what you probably would do. I actually Googled peremptory because I don't know what that meant. <laughs> I've never used that in a sentence, and I'm looking forward to a chance to do that now. But peremptory just simply means it's incontrovertible. Like it's not, you can't debate it. There are areas in our theology that there's some room to talk, and oh, maybe this or maybe that. But he's saying, Jonathan Edwards is saying, just like C.S. Lewis is saying, this is not an addition to, it's not a department in the church, it's not a committee like the short, you know, short tank for poor people where they got to come in and sit down and prove that they're poor enough. He's saying that this is just something we do. In the same way that a mom doesn't start the nurture department for her babies, she just, this is what she does, that this is what the church ought to do. It's what we get to do. It's as, it's as much a central part of what we do as reading the word, as worship, that our care for, our awareness of, our involvement with those who are poor in our community and around the world is not something we get to debate. In the, the work that Jamie is doing, the, um, when he told me that we would get to talk about St. Francis today, St. Francis of Assisi, it's not easy for me to say for some reason. I thought, well, this couldn't be more perfect for us because as a fellowship we don't talk about it much we just do it but it's good to have uh, you know goose us a little bit remind us of why it is that our fellowship at conduit was born out of this idea and a reminder of why we've continued down to that idea. it's a reminder of why we just now after however many six years finally got chairs that don't require a chiropractic visit after fellowship <laughs> you guys came on the right day <laughs> it's a reminder of why we've done it that way St. Francis was a guy that I actually, the first time I ever heard St. Francis's name, I was 16 years old, little redneck kid from Nebraska on my first mission trip ever. And I, literally the first time I'd ever even been on a plane was to go to Guatemala in 1987. And uh, there was a guy named Ron Luce who would have been like 24 at that time. There were like 30 teenagers. But he brings a guy with him named Rich Mullins. And Mullins had just spent the summer in Wichita uh, living in the back of his truck with his golden retriever or yellow lab or whatever and writing a record called The Winds of Heaven, The Stuff of Earth and a song called Awesome God. And, and, and Rich was a little rough around the edges uh, in those days, actually, in all of his days. And Rich, I remember, um, was standing in this. We were in a village in Guatemala. He's pounding a marble. talking about St. Francis of Assisi. Now, he later would get yelled at by Ron, understandably, that you don't smoke in front of the kids. But, but he, Rich was talking about something that I had never thought about because I actually was a poor kid. I mean, I grew up on welfare and food stamps. And in those days, that was maybe, I don't know if they still do it, but back then they would make you have a different color lunch card when you were the welfare kid because um, they knew and they would actually give you smaller portions in some schools because you were the poor kid. And, and I, those days... Uh, as poor as I was, hearing him talk about that, it, was, it actually didn't occur to me that, oh, I'm one of them. Like, oh, that's me. And I think the reason I didn't think about it was because as poor as I was, I lived in a society that had a government lunch program. Even though it was a different color lunch card, it was still a lunch card. 
that there was, a, there was provision for me, that there was a level of poverty that I still had not experienced yet. And when he spoke of St. Francis of Assisi, what he talked about was a guy who lived his life in such a way that engaged with the least of these brothers of mine. In his day, the, the lowest classes of, of lepers, the, this disease of leprosy, uh, nobody wanted to be around him. It was that way in Jesus' day. It was that day in St. Francis' day. And this was a guy who had grown up in a wealthy home, very prosperous, maybe like a Kardashian kid, not 100% sure on that, but knowing that he was wealthy and powerful and in a class that didn't deal with those lower classes. And Rich spoke of him in such a, uh, a hearty and a meaty way. In fact, later, Rich would um, start a little thing called this, the Kid Brothers of St. Frank. It was just part of what he did, and Rich lived that way. Rich was like the best kind of worst client to have in the music industry because he didn't care about the money. He moved to the Navajo Reservation at one point and taught English and taught uh, reading and writing to kids who had no hope and no, that was just the way he lived. It was the way he lived until he died, you know, prematurely and, and young. And he did it motivated and inspired by this guy named St. Francis of Assisi. And if you haven't heard of him, St. Francis, you might have heard of a quote that uh, is pretty famous by him. It's a quote that preach the word always and when necessary use words. Now, that's a quote that uh, I think Abraham Lincoln summed up best when he said, don't believe everything you read on the internet next to a picture. Because um, in reality, uh, nobody really knows if he said that. Like, nobody knows if St. Francis actually said that out loud. But the reason they would attribute that to him, the reason that even Rich would attribute to him, was before Google, so Rich didn't have a chance to Google it, was... Because that's kind of how he lived. He lived in such a way that his life preached as loud as his words. And his life, even though he wrote a lot and said a lot, so I think that the, the short reason is that people read that and they think, well, I don't ever have to say anything. I can just be good. I don't believe that that's accurate, and I don't believe that that's how he lived his life anyway. But he lived in such a way that a quote like that could become attributed to him because, well, of course he said something like that because that's just how he lived. And I look at a life of Rich Mullins. I look in the life of C.S. Lewis, who, by the way, li he lived and died giving away all of the money that he, was, uh, that he made from his book sales. Mere Christianity last year sold 150,000 copies just last year, decades after it was released. But C.S. Lewis died having given all of that away to charity, to helping people who were in desperate need. Rich Mullins, C.S. Lewis, Jonathan Edwards, and St. Francis of Assisi shows something in Scripture that is profound and important and something we got to talk about. What, is it ha what happens when the gospel really encounters me? What happens when the Spirit truly invades my life? Now, in the world I grew up in, a quote-unquote Spirit-filled church meant that we would run some laps. And look, I'm still a fan of laps. You know, you go with this to Africa, they'll take a lap. You know, sometimes it's like a Jesus conga line, right? You're going around. They would say that would be a sign of a quote-unquote spirit-filled church. But I wonder if a sign of a spirit-filled church is what the fruit of the spirit is. The fruit, the proof of the spirit, the fruit of the tree is actually the fruit that is on the tree. It's an apple tree, we know it because there's apples on it. If it's a spirit filled, we know that the spirit is there because the fruit of the spirit, Galatians tells us, is love.
I want to be a spirit-filled church. I want that to be who we are. And in the life of St. Francis, I see a guy that I think the gospel invaded his life and did three things in his life. Number one, it caused him to know the poor. He shed all of his possessions. He was disowned by his wealthy father, required him to walk away from everything he knew. It's not so much that he gave everything away. He didn't own it. It was his father's. He walked away from it. Walked away because he wanted to follow Jesus. He knew the poor. He became the poor and he loved the poor. That's what the gospel does to us. And when you look at the scriptures, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor, he is summing up what I can only imagine is over 200 that I know of, passages throughout the Old Testament. What the Israeli people, the Jewish people, who Jesus was a part of, what they did, what they were called to do and commanded to do by their father as it related to the poor, to the marginalized, to the oppressed. When Jesus said, blessed are the poor, I think that what the gospel does inside of us is it causes us to want to know the poor, to know what it really means. Now, the world would say, by the way, that poverty, extreme poverty, is uh, not Darren getting a different color lunch card, but the, the extreme poverty, real poverty, is living on less than a dollar a day. And that is all over the world. That it's an economic condition. It's an economic condition and it's a social condition. But the economic side of it, the Bible understands the complexities and would say even further that it's really what poor really, really means is I was born without the resources that the world values or the skills that the world values. And because of that, the world doesn't have to deal with me. The world can throw me away. When David and I were in North Africa a couple weeks ago, we run into a guy who gave himself the name Lucky because we couldn't pronounce his name. And with no sense of irony, he called himself Lucky. He was a guy that had managed to find his way to North Africa from, uh, from southern Ghana, which is on the other side. Put it in perspective. Outer Banks of North Carolina to Los Angeles is about 3,000 miles. That's how far Lucky had traveled. He grew up in a world where there was no, he didn't know how to read or write. He grew up in a place where there were no jobs. He grew up in a place where there was no hope. And so his hope was if I can get 3,000 miles to this northern tip of Africa, I can pay somebody. Somehow I'll figure out how to get $1,500 to pay a guy to throw me in a rowboat and get me across the Mediterranean to Spain so that maybe there's a chance. That was Lucky's life. And I remember we were standing there like, I didn't know what to do because like, what, how do you, what do we do with this guy? You get on that boat and you might die. You probably will die. Bodies wash up on shore all the time. Some of the more nefarious characters will actually get him out there, dump the boats, let him drown, and bring the boat back because they don't have to go as far and they have no chance of getting caught. That's Lucky's life. And if you think about it from that perspective, when Jesus said, blessed are the poor, like that's who he was talking about. And I kind of have a hard time with that. I'm going to tell you why in a minute, why I think he says it and why it's true. But for us to know what it really means is important. It's important to understand that when the Bible speaks of the poor in America, our middle class environment says, well, they should get a job. And why don't they get a job? Why didn't Lucky get a job? That's a great question. 
There are no jobs. He's an immigrant. There are no jobs in North Africa for him. As low on the caste system as he might have been in South uh, West Africa, on the North side, he was trash. He was a dog and treated like that from the fellow, the North Africans. And it helps to understand that when the Bible speaks of this, that it's actually not talking about those that have become poor through irresponsible behavior. The Bible has a lot to say about that too. That, by the way, is why we're going through Financial Peace University as a church. Because the question of what do we do with our finances, the question of what do we do as it relates to the poor, is the same question when you have too much. Financial Peace University is just one tool we found that says, if you have much, this is how you learn to be a steward of much. So it's just as important here to understand that God owns 100% of it here as it is there. The only difference is if you don't own anything, it's a whole lot easier to sing, I surrender all. When we sing it, it actually means something. There's a requirement that we're singing to that. Proverbs 10.15 says, The rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. For those of us that want to blame 2.9 million billion people, I'm sorry, for their poverty, the Bible here says something real. This is really unusual in the scriptures because what it's saying here is they're not poor because they did something wrong. They're not poor because they sinned. They're not poor because they didn't work hard enough. It says here that it was their poverty was their destruction, not their behavior. And if you think about it, it's what common sense would tell you. Am I, is it because I, I'm sitting where I'm sitting today because I happen to work harder than a guy like Lucky worked? Am I sitting here because of that or am I sitting here because of the grace of God? Are any one of us sitting here because we did something to earn it as much as we're here because of the very grace of God choosing us to be here? Verse uh, 4 of Proverbs 19 says that wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friends. I think in the New Living Translation, it actually says he has no neighbors because of his poverty. And the truth is, that happens not only in Africa, that happens even here. We call it gentrification. As a neighborhood is being reimagined and rebuilt, and what's happening is that folks that had lived there their whole lives, there's a guy that actually we met um, with Mark and Melissa dinner at our elders' dinner uh, who had used to live in a certain part of Nashville, and he was, had to move out of that because he couldn't afford to live there anymore. He's working as a, a host at this restaurant. And he had to move out because he couldn't afford to live in the neighborhood that he grew up in. When it says that the poor have no neighbors, it's really true because it pushes them away from us. I get to categorize and put them in a place where I don't have to deal with them. When you think about it in terms of that, in most neighborhoods, in the old days with the mom and pop restaurants, when you started a, a restaurant, you started a business, a store, you lived in the neighborhood that you did business in. And so the money that was spent in that, uh, that uh, place of business went back into that neighborhood and it created this great circle. But in most neighborhoods now, the people that own the stores, that own the restaurants, don't actually live in those neighborhoods and so the money is taken out of that neighborhood, not put back into that neighborhood. The poor have no neighbors. And the Bible tells us, and by the way, if you're sitting in this room and you live in America, he's talking specifically to you. 
You hear about the 99% from the politicians. They're only talking about the 99% of America. In the 99% of the world, you, congratulations, are in first place. He's speaking to us and how we should act and what we should do. And what he says of us is that we should have mercy on them. And if you look in the Old Testament, you see that that was what he did with the people of Israel, the way that their very culture was established. If you, had a, if you were a farmer, like Shannon and I are total farmers, we're total posers. Farming is hard work. In, uh, in Africa with Alex Matala, the guy we work with over there, I was telling him, I was so excited to tell him about our chickens, we're growing this, and, and he's like, why would you do that? Like in Africa, they're doing everything they can to not have to work like that. Like, you can just go to the store and get this stuff. Why on earth would you work so hard? I'm like, well, that's a really good point. <laughs> but in the culture of Israel, they would grow, so let's say it's five acres. They would plant all five acres, but they would leave the margins for the poor to come and to glean from them. They were not to harvest all the way to the margins. Every third year, an extra tithe was taken to give to the poor. Every seventh year, the, the Sabbath year, they were not to harvest their own orchards. They were to leave that to those who were in the greatest need. In the very culture, in the very heart of who Jesus was on earth, the very heart of who God is, was care and concern and involvement with the 2.9 billion people in this world, just like Lucky, who have no options. It's not just an economic condition, by the way. It's also a social condition. Proverbs 13.23 says that a poor person's farm may produce much food, but injustice sweeps it all away. It refers to the poor as a city without walls, without protection. You see, Lucky made it to North Africa, miraculously got $1,500 sent to him from somebody in America, he paid it to this guy who was going to get him on one of these boats, and he never saw the guy again. What he had was taken away from him. The social condition of it is that there are things that are happening in their lives. There's a story of a young lady named Eva. Eva was uh, involved in a, a Bible study during the summer. And if you want to read more about it, there's a guy, a book by this guy named Robert Linthicum. And if you've heard of him, high five. He was an urban pastor, and in 1957, he was still a kid. He was 21 years old, and he was a student pastor in an urban neighborhood, much like Becca, where you guys would have lived in inner city Chicago before coming here. And he met this girl named Eva, who was 14 years old. She was beautiful, but her life was a wreck. She's from a broken home. And before he left as a summer intern youth guy, for the, leaving for the summer, Eva had come to him. She was no job skills. She had nothing, but she had come to know Christ, and she was radiant, and she had come to him and saying that she had been pressured by some guys in the neighborhood, a, a gang, to become a part of what they're doing, which was prostituting these young girls to the men in the, in the suburbs. And, you know, he told her what any good, young, arrogant seminary graduate would say, just resist, resist the devil and he will flee, you know. He came back at the end of the summer and 
she wasn't at this Bible study anymore. She wasn't a part of church and found out that she had uh, she'd given in. He wouldn't look, she wouldn't look at him. She was, there was so much shame on her. And he went back and to her and said, why would you do that? Why would you give in? This is a true story. She said that it was, they threatened that they would beat my father, and they did. And then they threatened to beat my mother, and they did. And then they threatened my brothers, and so I, I gave in. And he said, why didn't you go to the police? Why didn't you tell someone? And she turned and she said, Bob, who do you think they are? And it was at that point that he realized that it was crooked police and the system that were running this ring. Sex trafficking is such a great example and a terrible example in our society around the world of the poor having something that they already had taken from them. And I know that this is, you're like, Darren, this is a huge bummer. (laughs) This is so depressing. And it's depressing, by the way, because all I'm giving you so far is religion. I haven't given you the gospel yet. This is supposed to be depressing because the gospel hasn't invaded this story yet. The gospel hasn't invaded us. For those of you that think, well, man, do you, you know, should I go and have to move into a neighborhood. I want my kids to be in the best schools. I want my kids to, should I have to go and move into one of these neighborhoods that I've moved out of? And I don't think you should. Did you think I was going to say you should? I don't think that's it. What I'm trying to show you is that the world is broken right now. The world system that we are in is broken. And we have to know that first before we can do something about it. A lot of the politicians you see on TV right now, they're making it a rich versus the poor. They're making it about these social classes warring each other. The Bible knows nothing of that. They might be identifying the right problem, but they're certainly not identifying the right solution. Socialism is man's construct of what the kingdom of God will one day be but it doesn't work in a fallen world. I think that understanding what it is, that it's an economic condition, that it's a social condition, that as the church we have to know how to respond to that. We have to know, like St. Francis, knowing the poor gave him an indication and an idea and the tools for how to deal with them. And it starts with simply acknowledging that they're there. Simply acknowledging that that's happening in the world. And once you know the poor, then we get a chance to bring Jesus, to bring the gospel into this because St. Francis didn't just know the poor, he became the poor. Now, he became the poor quite literally. And lest you think that's what I'm saying you should do, You might be thinking, oh no, that whole rich young ruler thing. Jesus said, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and follow me. Wow, that's what he's, I got to do that. That's what religion says to do, not Jesus. Because he told the rich young ruler to do that, but he told Zacchaeus 50%. But he told the Roman centurion to go back to the way you were. Didn't say anything about giving it away. What I'm saying is that the Holy Spirit might tell you to do something like that, but religion is the dangerous part of it where we ha- now we have to do that. I'm saying that's let the spirit guide you in that. What I think when he talks about becoming the poor has less to do with 
actual poverty and more to do with Matthew's version, which is spiritual poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Middle class in spirit means that if I earn it and I work hard enough at it, that I can earn something from my father. Middle class in spirit means if I pull myself up by my own bootstraps, then I can get ahead in the kingdom of God. Middle class in spirit says if I just believe, then I can have whatever I want. But he said blessed are the poor in spirit because the poor, what lucky knows, what 2.9 billion people know around the world is that when I come to the Father with nothing, with my, even my own good works are filthy rags, he says. Even the best day, the best thing I've got is still filthy rags in the presence of a perfect God. When I come to him and say I have nothing of value, nothing of no skills, because frankly, if I did it and I earned it, then God owed me grace. And if grace is a gift, then God would owe me something. I mean, if, if grace was earned and works, then, I'm, then it's a transaction. It's a business transaction with God. I'm doing something just to get a leg up, to earn something for the kingdom. But if grace is a gift, God doesn't owe me anything. And if grace is a gift, God can ask me to do anything. I can sing the words, I surrender all, that this world owes me nothing in a whole different way, in a whole different mindset, by becoming poor in spirit. By understanding that I come to him with my works and my earning and my thing, that he owes me something. Instead saying, I come to you, Father, I have nothing of value to you. I, I, I can't earn this, I can't buy this. I, coming knowing that it's all about you and what you did for me. It levels the playing field in front of the cross. And if you think about it, in much the same way that the world poverty talks about nothing that the world values and you have no resources, no. It really, it really does mirror spiritual poverty. It really makes me understand that why when Jesus, who was rich, became poor for our sakes, he was buried in a borrowed tomb, he rode a borrowed donkey, he slept, he became poor quite physically. And I understand that the gospel means more than just that, and it has to mean more than that, but it can't mean less than that. The, the physical poverty side, but on the spiritual poverty, it's me saying, I got nothing. And if it offends you, it's because you're middle class in spirit. And Jesus wants you to become poor in spirit, because you know what Lucky understands? Yeah, he sure does understand in a way that I hope someday to understand is that he came into this world with nothing and he will leave with nothing. But an encounter with Christ makes him richer than the richest man on earth. That he became poor so that we might become rich. Blessed are the poor. That we know who they are. We know what's happening. That we are becoming poor, not physically but spiritually understanding that the more I acknowledge that I have nothing, that I get to give away freely of what God has given me. That the truths that we're learning going through this financial peace journey is to say that I don't own any of this. I'm just a steward, and God didn't just want my 10%. He wants 100%. 
And me being a good steward of that is an act of worship so that I might become poor spiritually so that I can enter the kingdom of God. He didn't owe me anything, but he gives me everything. Knowing, becoming, and loving the poor. That's what St. Francis's life was marked by. Whatever the Catholic Church did, all the cathedrals that they built, and all the stories that were told, the one thing that we know was certain was this is a guy that stood in the same room side by side with people that society had cast away. And he loved him for just a moment. See, when we, while we were on that trip last week, there was a young lady named Rosie that had made her way to North Africa like thousands of other sub-Saharan Africans trying to get on the boat across to Spain. And Rosie found a man because she couldn't get across. She figured out that everybody had lied to her. There was no way out of this. And a man did what a man does. He, he oh, baby, I'll love you. I'll take care of you. I'll... And he loved her just long enough for her to get pregnant, left her, and here's this woman now with a baby living on the streets with no options and no hope. And when we, and I say we because I mean us, this, was, this isn't my money, it was conduit money, we're able to give them a couple hundred dollars to help pay for her medical bills, to help pay for some diapers. For that moment, and maybe just that moment, Rosie had enough. And by loving her in that way, it's not about pity. It's about Rosie understanding that someday that there will be enough. It's a glimpse of what is to come, a glimpse of glory. It was a whisper of Eden of what once was, where there was enough, there was provision, and there were no tears. For just that moment, heaven opened up, and we were just a simple conduit of heaven to earth so that she had enough for that moment, a reminder that she wasn't forgotten. When Jesus' prayer of thy will be done on heaven as it is in earth, if we are truly the hands and feet of Jesus, what that would look like is us, not just corporately in this room, but individually dispersing into our neighborhoods and into our streets and our schools, becoming a conduit of heaven to earth. We're not here to solve poverty. Jesus never wants it to go into all the world and fight poverty. I believe that he knew something that many of us could learn, and that's that we'll never solve it this side of heaven. And he knew that one day when he returns, when he returns, that says the government, Isaiah, the prophet said, will be on his shoulders. He'll figure it out. There's not a politician this side of heaven that can figure it out. But Jesus will one day figure it out, and there will be enough for everybody, for Rosie, for Lucky, for you, for me. But until that time and until that moment, those of us who live in America who have the opportunity to have enough, to have more than enough in many cases, it's our distinct privilege, it's our distinct honor to steal a play right out of the playbook of St. Francis and to bring heaven to earth. Would you stand with me? Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. My prayer today is that you guys, that I will leave here 
a little less middle class and a little more like Lucky. And let the Lord invade our lives and our hearts, not to walk out with some sort of weirdo guilt because I happen to be the guy born here and they were born there. That's religion. And by the way, middle class loves religion because we get to earn something. They walk out knowing that just for whatever reason, by the grace of God that you're here, we don't have to feel guilt about that at all. We feel thankful and we feel that being rich isn't a sin, it's just dangerous. Because we get to become poor in spirit and make sure that we get it. I guess I just wanted to leave you with that hope. You're in a good place. God has put you here for whatever reason here and Lucky's there. Someday we get to have him, we'll all know why. But for now, we get to have faith. And by the way, if you want to know more, and you're thinking, oh, I really want to read more, Timothy Keller's book, Generous Justice, is a great book. Helping That Hurts, When Helping Hurts. is like I read that every year, too, right after I read Mere Christianity to figure out all the ways we could screw it up. When Helping Hurts and Generous Justice. I'll put those on the Facebook page. But today, I want to challenge each of us. No longer, don't look, don't come back next week and think, oh, yeah, we're doing all this stuff because your church is doing it. We are the church. The church isn't a what, it's a who. It's you. How can you invade the people's lives with a picture of heaven on earth? Is it your neighbor? Is it your nephew? Is it your niece? Let's pray about it. Father, would you give us wisdom this week? Thank you for the lives of someone like St. Francis who shows us what's possible when the gospel invades us. To know you, to know the poor, to become more like the poor, to become more like you, and to love you and to love them. Let his life serve as a parable for us today of how our lives can be led this week and that we could be a conduit of heaven on earth this week. It's in your name that we pray. It's in the nature of who you are, your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.